30 for 30 podcast is brought to you by our friends at State Farm. Whatever life brings your way, State Farm is here to help life go right. State Farm has over 19,000 agents across the country. 19,000 is a huge number, but it's not the number that's impressive. It's the personal service and attention to detail you can only get from your local State Farm agent. Talk to a State Farm agent today about combining the purchase of your home and auto insurance. State Farm, here to help life go right. Hello and welcome to 30 for 30 Plus. My name is Jody Avergan. Last week, we brought you a bunch of conversations about some of our favorite films from the first 10 years of 30 for 30. Today, let's bring it up to the present and talk about a brand new favorite. I really do think this film is going to end up being in the top tier of movies in this series, in part because it's such a risky subject matter and it's executed so well. 12 the dominant power in the eating world. But this man may end the dynasty. Joey Chestnut says Kobayashi is going down. The Good, The Bad, The Hungry is the new film about the greatest rivalry in the world of hot dog eating. Takeru Kobayashi versus Joey Chestnut. They would go head-to-head every year at the Nathan's Hot Dog Contest in Coney Island around the 4th of July, trying to scarf down as many hot dogs as possible in about 10 minutes. There are 20 competitors here today from all around the world to the uh, what they call the Super Bowl of the eating events. It's sort of a ridiculous contest. You've probably seen it. It's from a ridiculous time in American culture when we were obsessed with competitive eating. But the film is anything but ridiculous. Director Nicole Lucas-Hames takes what I think is the best approach here. She plays it straight. She takes it seriously. She dives deep into the really fascinating characters at the heart of this film. Obviously, there's Kobayashi, the legend, and Joey Chestnut, who had to lose to him many times and then eventually beat him and then become perhaps the greatest competitive eater in his own right. And then there's the promoter who took Nathan's to a new level, George Shea. So here's my conversation about the good, the bad, the hungry. Nicole Lucas Haynes, director of The Good, The Bad, The Hungry, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on your new film. Thank you, Jody. I'm so happy to be talking with you today. So uh, I will confess that I actually have always wanted and wanted some or at least wanted someone to do this story and I've fantasized about how maybe I would do it in in my medium in audio I just think it's such a great story but one of the things I've always thought about was especially in audio there would be at least be a chance to force a lot of people to listen to chewing in their ears as they go but I actually wonder if we could start there with just how you approached the actual eating in this film were you worried about a gross factor? Did you approach shooting it in the same way that you would, you know, someone hitting a baseball or doing a skating routine or some other athletic feat? I thought about it quite a bit about not grossing people out with uh, the huge amount of chewing <laughs> and shoving food into the, into the face. And part of the challenge is that the entire movie is about eating. And because we look at a deep rivalry between Joey Chestnut and Takeru Kobayashi, there's many different kinds of eating over many years. So at a certain point, my best ideas about how to shoot the verite really went out the window. So it was, for some people, I think it, it may be a little bit much, But I think at a certain point, uh, most people kind of settle in and get 
inured to it other than the section of the film where Kobayashi eats brains, <laughs> cow brains. I mean, and that, I think, is a lot for anyone. Sakuru Kobayashi is approaching 10 pounds of cow brains, ladies and gentlemen. Let me state, that is a world record. How is it possible? At one point, uh, uh, one of the uh, audience members in Tribeca put her hands up over her eyes and I heard her say, oh, my God, this is a horror film. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good reaction uh, from you there. And, you know, one other thing I loved, and oh, gosh, I'm forgetting the term, but there's, there's, they, they use a term within competitive eating world where they don't say throwing it back up. What's the term? It's, uh, it's called a reversal. A reversal, yes. Wow. Chestnut's in trouble. Chestnut must hold that down. You cannot have a reversal on this stage. Kobayashi continues to just pound him down. He now has... Two uh, and I will say, like, we've, we started out talking about eating, and there is a lot of eating in this, but this film is, you know, so impressively about much more than that. And so let's talk about that and then get back to the food. The, the chestnut... Kobayashi is a classic sports rivalry, but there are many other kind of amazing characters in the competitive food eating world. How, how quickly did you realize this was going to be about the two of them or how much did you have to resist the temptation to bring in all these other characters? A wonderful woman on the development team, uh, Jenna Anthony, uh, approached me about the possibility of doing this film on competitive eating. So when I began to do research, I realized that George Shea was a central character in some ways in both Joey's and uh, Kobayashi's story. And when we talked further, I felt it was important to include George, in part because he had played a central role in creating the sport, as did Kobayashi. And I really wanted to keep the focus as narrow as possible just on these three individuals, in spite of the fact that there are other great characters. And I thought that there would be the opportunity, my guess was starting out, that there would be the opportunity for uh, resonance and hopefully greater themes. So in the in the rivalry itself, I mean, it is a kind of <laughs> made for TV or made for movie rivalry in terms of the twists and turns and the sort of epic epic moments. But what is it about the Kobayashi Chestnut rivalry that you feel like got at some of these bigger themes? In the movie, there's a very early scene where Kobayashi cries when he beats uh, the reigning uh, competitive eater in Japan. Uh, whose name is Kazator Arai. And when he beats Arai, uh, he weeps. And I thought, wow, that's so interesting. Why is he crying? And when I asked him that question, why did you cry when you beat Arai? He said, because I felt touched that I had beaten my mentor. And it was a complicated moment because I did want to win, but also it was a bittersweet feeling to become better than the person who I most admired. 
And it's very rare to see an American competitor weep when they beat their rival. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there's a different relationship to competing. Also in Japan, I also learned that people don't boo. In America, I think people boo quite a bit, and we heckle, and we enjoy trouncing uh, the opposing team verbally. And that all is sort of business as usual, I think, here. Maybe you know more about sports. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Well, um, but go Co- ahead. Well, Kobayashi actually kind of takes you there, too. He talks about learning about the American notion of rivalry and competitiveness and always needing to have someone to beat in order to win. Well, he was really shocked at the divisiveness of it. And then he was like, oh, when I look at American politics, American politics are this divisive as well. And this nasty... And I think he eventually learned, but in the moment it hurt him quite a bit to uh, see the bitterness of the rivalry. And Joey... And I don't think he would object to this characterization where Kobe might be seen as the artist in competitive eating. You know, Joey is the machine. He has an engineer's brain. So he approached competitive eating with that in mind and really worked to look at the very little muscles and jaw strength and how do you hold food down and really broke things down to a component part. But was it absolutely determined to beat Kobayashi. Thirty for Thirty podcasts are brought to you by OnStar. Now, no one likes to think about getting in a crash, but if one happens in an OnStar-equipped vehicle, you have people looking out for you. Special sensors can alert OnStar advisors to a crash. They can connect to your vehicle and get you the help you need, even if you can't ask for it yourself. Because when the unexpected happens, the last thing you want is to be alone. OnStar, be safe out there. Automatic crash response requires OnStar plan, working electrical system, cell reception, and GPS signal. OnStar links to emergency service. Details and limitations at OnStar.com. 30 for 30 podcasts is brought to you by Delta Airlines. Delta flies to 300 cities around the world. That's 300 cities where everyone does the same things you do. That's 300 cities where the people in those 300 cities think they're the only ones who know about that one place. 300 cities where people miss someone in one of the other 299 cities. 300 cities where people sing in the car or in the shower or both. Poorly. Delta isn't flying to 300 cities merely to bring us together, but to show us we're not that far apart in the first place. Delta. Keep climbing. The very first thing in the film is you hear Kobayashi say, there is no life without freedom, which is an incredibly big think thing to lead a film about competitive eating with. So why that first note from Kobayashi and what exactly do you think he means by there is no life without freedom? I'm going to back up just a little bit and say that for me... As a director, asking someone to come and watch a film for an hour and a half is a, 
is a big request on an audience. And so for me, it was really important to make the film as deep as possible and to really tell the human stories of these three titans in this world, Takaru Kobayashi, Jerry Chestnut, and George Shea. And when I began to look at deeper themes, it was clear that Kobe had been pushing against the strictures of, you know, some of the restrictions of Japanese society to become a professional leader. His father, who was a Buddhist, really uh, didn't approve. And so I think for Kobe, the themes, the theme of freedom was very important to his life. It informed the ways in which he rebelled and ultimately, it informed his relationship with Major League Eating. So we, to answer your question now specifically, we put Kobe up front with that bite, talking about there is no life without freedom, to also signal what, what is important to him as, as a person, as well as to let the viewer know, hey, hang in here, because this movie is about um, far more than just who can eat the most hot dogs. Yeah, um, and I mean, I think he 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 says. I mean, he's he's incredibly thoughtful and um, both self reflective and you know observant about the world and his place in it in a, in, a, in a kind of really special way. I mean, did you have a sense of that going into it that this is this guy is a is a really special character? Well, let me put it this way: when you do a documentary, it's always a journey of discovery. As a filmmaker, you're learning more and more about, you know, the subjects. And so I initially did a lot of reading about George, uh, Joey, and Kobayashi. But meeting Kobayashi in person was a very different experience than reading about him because he's so, he's very tenderhearted and has quite the artist's spirit. Mm-hmm. He looks like, I mean, certainly when I lived in New York, a downtown artist. Yeah. He has amazing style. He's always coloring his hair a different color. His wardrobe is enviable. I would love to have his wardrobe. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> I, I get it. Yes, he really does have the, an artist sensibility, as does uh, his wife Maggie. Yeah, and so can you can you talk a little bit about her role in the film as well? I mean, she she you know she has some key moments where she really lets us understand what he was living through. Maggie is both Kobe's wife and manager today, but when she first came to know Kobayashi, she was um, a fan, and then became a friend. And so she lived through a lot of the challenges that Kobayashi went through uh, first as his friend. And so I think she's had a very challenging role and feels the weight of wanting to be sure she's making good decisions on behalf of him. I, I think it's... I think she's brave to take that role. I wouldn't yeah. want to be the manager of my husband's career. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so when Chestnut finally does beat Kobayashi, 
and then continues to to beat him. There's a moment where, and you linger on this a bit, but there's a moment where Kobayashi kind of turns not just from the Michael Jordan who's finally, you know, overcome, but somehow turns into a villain. Why does it go that extra step? Why does Kobayashi become a villain? Kobayashi became the darling of America. And he was, you know, John Stewart had talked about him. He made, he was on commercials. He was portrayed in The Simpsons. Um, he became a cultural phenom here. And it was really extraordinary that we, as Americans, embraced um, a Japanese competitive eater. And we loved him. So I think he really took in how much he was Mm. adored and was really determined to make it an international sport. And And that was his goal and his dream. And later, after he started to lose, when one could hear more booze in the crowd and and more people shouting, USA, USA, um, it really did hurt him. Kobayashi was just trying to go out there and do his best and inspire people and have a good time and People made him the villain. I think he was baffled and confused by it and hurt by it because he didn't, I think, initially understand why this is a... you. He saw himself as, a, as an American hero, so why is all of a sudden this about being USA, USA versus Japan rather than just who's the best man, who's the best eater? Let's talk a little bit about competitive eating just as a cultural phenomenon. I mean, can you just kind of give your best theory the case of why in the mid-2000s we suddenly became obsessed with this? You know, one viewer made a comment that I really appreciated and said, I wonder if 50 years from now, if we're going to look back at this film and see it almost as a time capsule for America today. And I think part of that is the nature of excess. And I think part of it is the, is the moving nature of truth. And George Shea quite unabashedly shared um, how he created this. And when you do PR, and particularly stunt PR, truth is a moving, is a moving factor. To create a sport, you need a backstory. So George had to create a backstory. The greatest example of that is the coveted mustard yellow belt. We've got the trophies here that would adorn anyone's home or office, of course, the belt. Created by the descendants of Fabergé, I understand. Cynics would say that my buddy Kevin Pierce made that on the floor of our apartment using a weight belt and jewels from Pearl Paint on Canal Street. I can't verify that. At that time, George Shea had taken what was still a tiny little sport and with a bit of ballyhoo got some press coverage on not what it was yet but what he wanted it to be. In 2001 I said you know I'm going to start picking up the phone and I picked up the phone to a guy at the LA Times I said look these guys are out on the circuit this is a whole new culture 
There, there, there are three guys, they are traveling America. They're traveling the blue highways of America, searching this glory. And in fact, well, they may not have been doing it that second, but they soon were. See, a lot of what I say is not literally true in terms of words, but it's emotionally true. And so with a little bit of exaggeration, he began to get some momentum in the press about what this sport was. And I think there was something really fascinating about eating to excess mm-hmm. that that speaks to, um, for me anyway, it spoke to part of my rebellious nature because it so violates everything we're taught about food. You're taught to eat nicely. You're taught not to eat with your hands. And here these guys are shoving as much food in your face as you possibly can, which we're not supposed to do, making a mess, eating with your hands, and essentially violating every rule around good manners, which is really funny. And so when I became introduced to competitive eating, which I had not known anything about, um, that feeling of rebellion really struck me um, and Americans love our, we love our rebels. We were founded on rebellion. And I think it's a very significant strain in our culture. Hmm. And you did. What do you think? What did you, why do you think people like competitive eating? Well, I, you know, I hadn't thought too much about the, um, the kind of like transgressiveness of the relationship with food and eating itself. I mean, I, you know, I will, I will say that I think over the last 10, 15, 20 years, we've seen, a number of these phenomenon where at some level, you know, we actually did a did a documentary about this where, you know, there was a moment where like ESPN, it felt like aired 20 hours a day of uh, people playing poker. And it was just one of these things where, you know, it's almost like you can take almost anything that has competition and just you point a camera at it and you have good producers who know how to craft a story and you can turn it into something that people are going to be obsessed with for two years. And then you move on to the next thing and then you move on to the next thing. So, you know, each one has its own appeal and taps into different parts of our identity. But I think at some fundamental level, there's also just the like, our reality TV cycle is always looking for the next thing to to shine a light on for however long we'll sustain. Well, I think that's true too because there's... We love competition, and and you're right. A story well told is a story well told on any terrain. I mean, you can make a bus ride interesting if uh, told well. Okay, so so as we wrap up here, I'm curious. I mean, are you one of these filmmakers who you've made this and now you move on? Or have, are you now a, a competitive eating aficionado? Are you going to watch it on TV? Do you have a prediction about how Joey Chestnut is going to do this year? Uh, where do you, Where do you stand? I have become an absolute fan of competitive eating, and I really um, have come to enjoy the sport and to enjoy the wide range of characters in the sport, even though they didn't all get portrayed. And if I were a betting person, I would say Joey Chestnut will win this year hands down. All right. Um, He's not ready to retire yet um, and is still putting up a really good fight even though he just recently lost a donut competition, <laughs> I think that was a fluke. He must have been having some sugar issue that yeah. day. Wow, no you really kidding, are. But, um, You're really tracking the like so, second tier, uh, the lower circuit stuff too, huh? 
I am tra- I'm still tracking it. Yeah. Um, and so I would imagine that going forward, I will watch it annually, but I'm looking ahead to other kinds of storytelling. Yeah. Uh, and other subjects. All right. Well, Nicole Lucas Hames, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. And, you know, again, thanks for making this film. Pleasure. And, Jody, thank you for your great questions. Of course. It's just a delight to talk to you. Nicole Lucas Haynes is the director of the new 30 for 30 film, The Good, The Bad, The Hungry. It debuts on Tuesday, July 2nd at 8 p.m. on ESPN, so catch it live if you are hearing this in time. It'll also be re-airing in the coming days, and then later this month it'll be available on our streaming service, ESPN+, Plus, which is also the home to the entire 30 for 30 collection. You can sign up for ESPN+, Plus right through the ESPN app. This episode was produced by Andrew Mambo with help from Ryan Nantel, Mitra Kaboli, Samantha Dowd, Gentry Kirby, and Annie Selsey. My name is Jody Avergan. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more 30 for 30.